0: Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Is it the classic Monty Python clip of the knights who say "ni"? Maybe it's Catherine Tate as a teenage shav saying, am I bothered? What about when everyone used to go around saying computer says no from Little Britain? Maybe you call people sweetie darling like Edna and Patsy on Absolutely Fabulous. Whichever your favourite, a lot of our humour really does come from the UK. Different Times, written by David Stubbs, chronicles the history of British humour and its reflections on society. Welcome to you, David. Hi, thanks for having me on. There really is a cult-like nature to humour, but I would say particularly British humour. I mean, you're either an Office UK or Office US fan. You either love Mighty Boosh or you just don't get it at all. Tell me about the power, and maybe it is soft power, that British humour has has brought the world
1: yeah i mean you know that's an interesting point i mean when i write the book i'm kind of writing it very much from a sort of british perspective and the british experience of the way that like you know comedy has kind of developed so in some ways you know in tandem with the sort of i you know the social political situation in the uk and some british comedy um exports well and and some doesn't necessarily you know some is almost like peculiar to the uk But some does and clearly, you know, so there are certain things that come from Britain that are very kind of British in character and yet have this sort of universality.
0: It is a generational thing too. I mean, Hmm. I don't know if you can draw a direct line from, you know, Thatcher's England and the Hmm. sort of enjoyment of Monty Python which went alongside it. I mean, do we think, I don't know what Monty Python would think, but thanking Thatcher for their comedy is kind of pretty Python.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, well, actually, I mean, Margaret Thatcher is pretty much post- Python, really. I mean, you know, she came to power at the time of the Life of Brian, which is perhaps one of the the last and the greatest things that they actually did together. You know, um, you know, I suppose Python really belonged to the, the late sixties and seventies. Now, with Margaret Thatcher, she comes in at a time when there's a couple of things happening in in in, in the UK. There is there was a whole sort of punk revolution of the, like, of the late 70s, 1977, that sort of time. But also, in tandem with that, and slightly later, um, alternative comedy. Um, and that gave rise to sort of people like Alexi Sell and eventually the Young Ones, which I'm pretty sure was very, you know, is very popular in Australia. And that almost like a sort of like had a kind of sort of punk type kind of impact on comedy. It, it did similar to what punk rock did, which was to kind of sort of, you know, um you know, get, get rid of the kind of, you know, the horry old dinosaurs and the sort of cliches and, and and the sort of things like, you know, the sexism and the homophobia and racism that used to get in, in 70s British comedy. So I think that's where the kind of relationship was. You know, it's a kind of an ironic one, really. So on the one hand, you've got Margaret Thatcher ushering in this era of, like, quite extreme conservatism. But on the other hand, culturally, you've got this kind of sort of, as it were, I don't know, sort of progression to the left, really.
0: Why do you think Britain... Has, in in your own words, this overemphasis on humour, yeah. I mean, it's this kind of link to the weather, surely, it's miserable, uh, you're in the pub, what else have you got to do? Yeah. Again,
1: absolutely, you know, and this is the particular kind of British condition, you know, a certain kind of, sort of moroseness, a certain down illness that you get. You know, I mean, someone like Tony Hancock, I suppose, you know, you, you watch, it's wonderful, but, you know, you just get this sense of almost like sort of perma drizzle, you know, when you're watching or listening to Hancock, <laughs> um, you know, but um, yeah, and I think, you know, I think that very much characterizes it. And yeah, and you mentioned overdetermination. I mean, this is one thing I opened the book with a little sort of essay about Boris Johnson, because for me, personally, I think that Boris Johnson is like this kind of almost tragic epitome of like, you know, Britain sort of being overdetermined by things being a bit of a laugh, or, you know, let's, let's, let's vote in Boris Johnson as prime minister, that'd be a laugh, wouldn't it? Um, you know, there's almost that kind of anti-seriousness. So, yeah, Britain has produced a great deal of comedy, but I think other countries, other nations, are perhaps rather than like, you know, say, oh, you've got a laugh, haven't you? You have to have a laugh. They've actually invested that energy and not know getting rid of getting rid of their monarchies or whatever and declaring themselves material republics. you know so yeah, I do think that while you know it, it's a strength that Britain has produced so much comedy and it's been exported all around the world, We can perhaps do with, you know, being a little bit more serious at times.
0: You sort of see this overemphasis, as you mentioned, to to leading to the creation of Boris Johnson, who you artfully eviscerate at the beginning of this book, (laughs) calling him a, you know, commie tragedy. (laughs) Uh, Comedy Hmm. and politics are inseparable in Britain, um, yeah and, and it is the same too here. I mean I, I think it, we have this tall poppy idea where we have to have to cut them down to size, we can't uh, fully glorify their careers. W- why mm. do you think this is so powerful when it comes to British comedy particularly? I'm thinking about in the thick of it, for example.
1: Yeah I mean in, in yeah the thick of it is, you know, it, it's, it's absolutely tremendous. And, yeah, even now, it just shows how fast-moving things now are. I mean, it, it, it in terms of its kind of, you know, the quality of its wit or whatever, it feels kind of state-of-the-art. Um, and, yeah, it belongs to... It, it comes from a, a, a different time, really. You know, it was a time, for instance, when... Um, you know, if 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 MPs, you know, sort of messed up in any particular way, they, they would get sacked. I mean, these days, no one gets sacked. You know, it belongs to a sort of slightly ear, ear in the in UK when Labour was still in charge, but it was in the kind of the very late era of like, you know, uh, late, you know, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, or whatever, where everyone's feeling very, very cynical and disillusioned. You know, and what was coming next, you know, hadn't quite happened yet. You know, David Cameron and things like that. The think of it is brilliant, but again, it, it it refers to a particular time. I mean, another one is like, yes, minister. When we're mm. talking
0: about politics. Oh, yeah. Now,
1: the ironic th- thing about Yes Minister, again, it's brilliantly funny. I watch it all the time. It's brilliantly funny, it's witty. And yet, it took place in the era of Margaret Thatcher, where, I mean, the Yes Minister is really all about how you, know, you try out some sort of radical idea, but eventually, These civil servants, you know, a bit like Jeeves and Worcester, you know, like, you know, that that they they restore the status quo. I mean, that's a classic thing about sitcom, everything's reset. You eventually just get back to the status quo. Otherwise, if you don't, then the sitcom ends. But the thing about um, Yes Minister is is that, and yes, Prime Minister, is it was taking place in the era of Margaret Thatcher. It was really referring to the state of politics in the sort of the mid-70s, really, even though it was broadcast around the 80s. But in fact, in the era in which Yes Minister was broadcast, exactly the opposite was happening. Margaret Thatcher was, like, radically sort of tearing up all the sort of, like, consensuses and and conventions and and what have you, you know, so there's
0: a little irony there as well. Yeah, it's funny how uh, comedy really shows us how repetitive politics is. If you just join me on Iron Drive, David Stubbs is here. We're talking all things British comedy. His book, Different Times, uh, really chronicles the history of British humour. You make the argument in this book that modern comedy has gone backwards in its availability to people from working-class backgrounds, given platforms like TikTok and YouTube where anyone can go and give comedy a go. Do you think that Mm. that really is the problem? I'm I'm curious what you meant by that.
1: Well... Um, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, I think there, there, there's there's a oh my god, there's always a kind of a class situation in the UK. And I think if there's one area, I think in lots of ways, British comedy is contemporary British comedy has gone forward in a great many ways. It's it's become more inclusive. It's almost become you know it's more compassionate in very cruel times. It's created this kind of like you know safe space. I'm thinking of series like Ghosts and The Detectorists. It's almost like comedy plus. You know, it's got on one hand, yeah, you know, these are very funny series, but they always have a kind of the sense of a duty of care to sort of like our collective, I don't know, mental health. Partic- particularly
0: but- with the detectorists because that is <laughs> just a salve for middle-aged men who are lonely yeah. pursuing their own uh yeah. sort of boring hobbies. I mean, I felt very seen by that uh, <laughs> by that uh series, yeah. I have to say.
1: Yeah. But there's an underlying sense of compassion, I think, in the way that people create comedy disease. It's almost like, let's say, this sense of duty of care Probably people previous generations of sitcom writers didn't necessarily think of you know the, you know the sitcoms was like creating gags and stuff like that. Now you mentioned yeah but, I mean but also yeah comedy has become definitely a lot more diffuse. You know, I was I was talking to my daughter the other day. She's eighteen and she doesn't. I said, do you watch any? Do you watch anything on TV at all? Said, no. You know she just watches little clips of yeah. Like, I mentioned things like TikTok and YouTube and stuff like that. And so the audience has become. A lot more diffuse. It's not like the days of, say, steptone Son. So, in nineteen seventy, steptone Son, an episode of, set, would have been watched by an audiences like of twenty million in the UK. it um, the, the only program. I think that the only program, one of the programs that outdid it, was Miss World. So, again, at yeah, different <laughs> times, but um, yeah. So, there's, yeah. There's, so that that's a different problem, and, and I think also I address this idea. I mean, on the one hand, you know, I'm saying like I'm making this kind of slightly bold argument about alternative comedy, political correctness, whatever, but I'm certainly not interested in... I think the cancellation that's taking place is simply the nature of TV. Certainly in the UK these days, everything... When I was growing up, I would see programmes from the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 60s, you know, and then obviously the 70s. But these days, you know, you turn on the main channels and everything feels like it was made about six weeks ago. Um, You know, we're living in this sort of perma now, you know, and you don't... So, you know, kids you're not going to see Lauren Hardy, you're not going to see Charlie Chaplin, you're not going to see Tony Hancock or Tommy Cooper, any of these people, if you switch on, you know. I just... I saw all these things because they were on, you know. They, they, you know, you turn on the telly, there were three channels, and they were on, you collided with them. And now you would have to actively seek them out, you know, and I do think that's kind of sad, really.
0: You touched on this a little bit, but there has been this ongoing discussion around wokeness in humour with the threat of cancellation as a result in the comedy world. Many famous comedians have fallen foul of this. You pose an interesting argument that it's actually benefited comedy. Is it for the obvious reasons that there's just more material, more sensitivities to play with?
1: Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I mean, I very starkly and sort of, you know, Mm -hmm. deliberately, provocatively now say how political correctness saved comedy. Now, what I'm saying there is that, like, I mentioned alternative comedy later on and the idea that, like, as with Punk, that was kind of came out to drive out all the kind of, like, dinosaurs, like, you know, Pink Floyd or whatever, or Jethro Tull, that that, that alternative comedy, in a sense, and it was a gradual it was was doing something similar. um, And it was saying, look, you know, we can't, make this kind of you can't just sort of fall back on these lazy stereotypes you know the racism the sexism the homophobia anymore it's 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 harm it's not just harmful it's just lazy and so once you decide that then you're gonna have have to think harder and do better so you know once you say okay we can't just like resort to um, mother-in-law jokes etc etc then you have to sort of think okay well we've got to create comedies we've got to create situations create narratives you know we're going to have to sort of think about how life is actually sort of Experienced, and and when you do that, you suddenly get this kind of wealth of like, you know, sort of naturalistic comedies, you know, brilliantly kind of acutely observed things, anything from the office to the Fast show. And there was actually a sort of almost like a kind of golden age in the '90s. Once this whole principle of alternative comedy, or as it, as it were, political correctness came in, and you just get this kind of much greater sort of wittier range of like characters, situations, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because they're having to avoid all of these kind of offensive stereotypical old cliches.
0: I just got a flashback to what was on the television at three o'clock in the afternoon on this very public broadcaster, I might add, when I was a child. It was the right. goodies. And when you think yeah. about the slapstick elements of that, the sexism of that as well, and you reference the comedian Danny Baker making mm. the observation in 2020 that there's never... Uh, any need these days for a character to try and disguise themselves as a tree anymore. Yeah. Do, do you yeah. think silliness and slapstick is gone or is it just in the queue to be nostalgically I, 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 revived again?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, this is the funny thing, you know, that I, I, I included that little bit as a, almost as a sort of counter to some of the things that I was saying really, that, yeah, there is a certain amount of, like, absolute carefree silliness that perhaps is a little bit thin on the ground in this perhaps, you know, sometimes this drive for sort of naturalism, for sort of comedy plus or whatever. The goodies are a curious situation. The goodies are almost like they started around 1970, the end around 1980. And they were hugely popular at the time. I was a kid and, and I watched them and I just laughed so hard at the goodies. And yeah, i mean you know a lot of comedies are kind of occasionally broadcast the goodies has been kind of completely buried now part of the reason for that is that there are some extremely sort of dodgy bits you nudity know, sort
0: of, outright nudity i i yeah up.
1: yeah yeah yeah, absolutely i mean at the time they probably thought they were being kind of edgy sometimes it's the programs that in the time seem like kind of kind of daring and edgy that kind of present the most problems later on subsequently because the things that they're kind of touching on they're not necessarily doing in a particularly you can say you know, you know, in a particularly kind of well constructed way, and so, um, yeah, the goodies that you know, you look back and there's awful examples of, you know, these examples of blackface and stuff like that, and they probably think, hey, yeah, look, come on we're the goodies, we're cool, we live with this, all right? If we're black, we're not being racist, you know? It's us, it's the goodies, but no, no, I mean, it just does not, does not work. But at the same time, it's kind of sad because, yeah, you mentioned the sort of slapstick, some of their little kind of sort of like, uh, you know. Um, fast crank kind of like you know silent sort of silent comedy type routines they're they're actually really really funny they're very good it's you know so on the one hand I'm you know it's paradox on the one hand I'm saying look yeah we can't have this we can't do this kind of thing anymore you know on on the other hand something's been kind of lost as well with the goodies so you know I would actually it's like with all of these things I would advise anybody to go back and And actually watch all of these things with the caveat. And when I compare it to fish bones, you know, that like you you will get these moments and it is a bit like finding the old fish bone in a tasty fish supper, you know, with with that caveat. So I'm certainly not one of these people that wants to be kind of censorious. Um, anything like that because there is you know when people talk about wokeness and cancel culture there is a kind of spurious element of self-pity i think on the part of a certain generation and you know and it's not you know nothing you know you can even you can, you can find ways of watching all of these things actually you know it's very easy to find these things on dvd or whatever you know what you might just get occasionally is a little mild warning and that would you know, that like, so an episode of Porridge that might say, look, you know, reflects some of the kind of attitudes of the day, and people get enraged by this. But, you know, yeah, you watch it, it's just mild warning. And, yeah, in the first... Within the first two or three minutes, you know, there's a joke, you know, about a black prisoner, and the joke is that he's black, you know, and it goes, no, you don't do that kind of thing anymore. And the rest is great, you know, but, um, you know, so... I you know, I'm I'm very skeptical about this whole idea of people being actually kind of cancelled and erased. You know, like one of Stalin's old cronies or whatever, airbrushed out of a photo. It's just not like that. It's just it's just a bit difficult, a bit more difficult to find these things, unfortunately.
0: That's well, a bit like John Cleese claiming to be cancelled, but I think at the time he had a show yeah. on BBC. So, oh, yeah. 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 yeah, today's yeah, today's laughter is tomorrow's cancellation, as they say. I mean,
1: people like absolutely, yeah. People like John Cleese, you know, they've been cancelled, you know, in the Spectator, in the Times, you know. You can't, you know, for someone that's cancelled, you know, you hear from him every two or three days. <laughs>
0: It's been so fantastic to relive some of these shows. I'm going to go off and uh, fall down a YouTube hole on fast show skits because that definitely is my jam. David Stubbs has been my guest. Read his new book, Different Times, on the history of British humour and it's out now. Good to talk to you, David.
1: And you. Thanks so much
0: indeed. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.